Ready or not, here we go. So, uh, back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, we're going to be starting in verse 15, going through verse 23. Um, last week, we were uh, verses 7 through 14, and we, we talked about uh, this idea of anxiety and being concerned with things that are outside of our influence, you know, being tied up and worked up over things that we can't do anything about. And uh, when Jesus told the disciples not to worry about what they were going to eat or what they were going to wear or what they were going to clothe themselves with, he wasn't talking about being prepared. He was talking about that anxiety that, that just ties us up in knots. And last week we saw, uh, or previously, I'm sorry, the week before last, when we looked at the beginning of chapter 7, when he was talking about judging people, the most basic message of that passage was take care of your own sin before you worry about somebody else's, before you let anxiety over somebody else's sin impact your life. Take care of your own sin first, then you can help others to seek reconciliation and a way out of their sin. Don't worry about what their sin is. Worry about what you can influence first, which is taking care of the sin in your own life. Uh, last week was the... the uh, sections on prayer and the golden rule. If we were to boil down the message of verses 7 through 11, it was trust God to give you what you desire and submit yourself to God fully enough that what you desire is what He wants, not just for the flesh. And of course, with the golden rule, the message was contrary to the message of the world. Uh, the world says, look out for number one because nobody else will, right? you got to take care of number one first, because nobody else will take care of you. God says, do good for other people the way you would desire for them to do good for you. And now, verses 15 through 23, where Jesus first gives a warning to the church, and then he speaks what I've said before is probably the most frightening message for the church in all of Scripture. And, and we'll look at that here in a little bit. So everybody stand with me. As I read verses 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage yet again, another passage that we've probably heard hundreds of sermons on, help us to look at it with a fresh set of eyes and to understand and apply what you say to our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, please. So, if you have a study Bible, or just about any 
uh, Bible that, that does this, you probably have uh, paragraph headings somewhere in the text where they have them in bold or in different font or whatever, where it tells you kind of what the main idea of that paragraph is. You know what I'm talking about, right? Number one, those are not inspired. Those are put in by the, uh, the translators to help us study so that we have a, a better idea of just exactly what the passage is about. Uh, and number two, if you do have one, it's, there's probably a, a heading for verse 15, and then there may be one in between verses 20 and 21. Now, the other thing that this helps us to do is to find passages faster when we're looking through the Bible to help us lead people to certain passages or to find something that we know. Tell me I'm not the only one who's ever done this. I know the Bible says this somewhere, right? Anything that I can have that will help me find that somewhere is a good thing, and that's what these headings are for. However, um, even though the, these headings aren't exactly inaccurate, at least the ones that I have, you know, at the beginning of verse 15, it labels that paragraph as a tree and its fruit. And then in verse 21, the, the heading that they put there is, I never knew you. And that's just the study headings that they put in mind. Yours are probably different, but even though those headings do reflect what's in the paragraph, in light of the, the greater context of the whole sermon that Jesus is preaching, um, these nine verses are all tied right together, particularly. Now, they don't. it's not to say that they're separate from the rest of the sermon, but these nine verses are very much integrated together into one thought. The first six verses are a warning to the church. Not every teacher can be trusted. Not every person who says they are presenting God's word can be trusted. Jesus, who's the master of uh, analo- uh, analogies, I mean, you think about all of his parables and the analogies that he uses, he gives us this word picture of a sheep, uh, I'm sorry, a wolf wearing sheep's clothing or the skin of a sheep. And then he uses fruit and trees, something that an agricultural society, like the people that are listening to him, that's easy to picture. Now, in the 21st century United States, depending on where you live, people might not understand this. People may not understand this picture of a tree bearing fruit, because there are people out there who believe that fruit is processed from factories and put into cans at the grocery store. They don't know that it grows on trees. They don't understand that 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 pound of hamburger actually came from a cow that was out in a field somewhere eating grass or corn. They don't don't get that. But, But this analogy that Jesus uses makes good sense. I mean, start, Jesus says, beware. I like that word, beware. And now, because I am such a word nerd, you know, I dig into this passage and I'm like, all right, there's got to be something profound about this word, beware. So I went out and I looked it up in the Greek. And I was going to throw in a splash of, of the etymology of the English word and how beware came to be from the Old English and the, and the Welsh and the, all these other things. And, and then God said, ha ha, you know what the Greek word means? Beware. 
You know what the English word means? Beware. <laughs> I got a little bit too big for my britches. God said, no, beware. It's, it's that simple. Be cautious. Don't be gullible. Keep an eye out for something. Jesus says, beware the false prophets. So again, false prophets. If we think about the prophets in the Old Testament. God had a, a, a very easy test for a prophet in the Old Testament. Right? So if the prophet says something and it doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet, take them outside the camp and execute them. We can't do that in the United States. There is a thing called due process and, and so on and so forth. But that's, that was God's measure for a false prophet. If they say something's going to happen and it doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. It's that easy. In the Greek, this is another one of those cases. Like, man, these, Jesus has got to be using these big... Yeah, the word in the Greek. Pseudo-prophetis. Really? What does the word pseudo mean? False. Prophet. It's right there in the Greek. Jesus said, beware the false prophets. It doesn't get much more plain than that. He spoke very clearly, watch out for false prophets. Okay. So what is a prophet? What does a prophet do? He prophesies. How about that? All right. A prophet is not a fortune teller. Uh, a prophet is somebody who speaks God's truth. Okay? The word prophesy, the, the Greek word for, that we translate as prophesy, means to foretell. Not to foretell, but to foretell. To tell forth something. And that something, if you're God's prophet, then it's going to be God's word that you're telling people. In the case of Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and so on and so forth, that forthtelling often includes an element of foretelling. For example, when Isaiah was prophesying to the people of Israel, he's telling them, if you don't stop doing this, then God's going to do this. And when we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah stands up and says, remember how the prophet said... That if you don't stop doing this, then God was going to do this. Look what's coming over the hill. See, God's doing that. So we have this idea of telling God's truth. So Jesus says there are going to be those people who infiltrate the visible church. Now this is a hard thing to kind of wrap your head around. But the church is actually made up of a visible church and an invisible church. And in some places they overlap. The invisible church are the people who are saved. The visible church are the people who are here, (laughs) as an example. For the most part, those two overlap. I don't know, truly, honestly, who is a member of the invisible church. That's the idea of invisible. You can't see it. God, God does not tattoo us on the forehead with a cross when we become saved. So all we can do is assume and watch a person's life. The visible church will be infiltrated by people who are false teachers. They are A false prophet is somebody who is actively seeking to tear apart 
the church. Someone who is actively seeking through inference, innuendo, false teaching, heresies, whatever, they're seeking to derail the church from what Christ has called her to be. Okay? That's why Jesus uses the picture of a ravenous wolf that's wearing a sheep's skin. He's not using the picture of just a sheep that's off the rails and wandering around in the, in the wilderness, who's kind of off on their own, or even a sheep that manages to get, convince other sheep to follow it. He uses the picture of a wolf. A wolf has one motivation in a flock of sheep. Dinner. Okay? To destroy. So that's what Jesus is talking about here at the beginning here. He says, beware the false prophets who come to destroy the church. And then he tells us how we can tell who the false prophets are. We are to observe the fruit. You won't find grapes growing out of an oak tree. Unless you happen to plant a grapevine underneath an oak tree. But they're not growing from the oak tree. They're growing from the grapevine. But from a distance, you're going to see grapes growing from an oak tree. Or, I, I, I'll give you this example. This is a freebie right here. Um, you walk past a tree. You're, you're, say, 15, 20 feet from the tree. You walk past. You notice the leaves on it. It's an oak tree. But there are a bunch of pecans laying on the ground underneath it. No. They've fallen out of that tree. And then as you look a little bit, you, you're at 20 feet. You see pecans on the ground, but you see an oak tree. Okay? I'm, I'm a very simple person. Yeah, I've got a master's degree, but it's not in trees. Okay? I understand that an oak tree does not grow pecans. That's not how this works. Oak trees grow acorns. Pecan trees grow pecans. We have a tree at the end of our road that has oak tree and a pecan tree have grown up together and they share a trunk. The pecan grows off this side, the oak grows off this side, and occasionally you'll get a pecan branch that'll go through the oak and oak leaves are thick enough you can't tell until you see pecans on the ground. But there's only one way I could figure this out and it took me a while. I shall attest to it. it took, we'd walk past this thing all the time and I'm like, what in the... How? Okay? In order to get close enough to determine that that's what the case was, I had to actually go examine the tree. You're not gonna, if you've got a flock of 100 sheep out on a hillside and one of those sheep happens to be a wolf that's wearing wool, you're not going to get away with just looking from 100 yards away to be able to pick that animal out. You have to be close enough to examine that fruit. We can't do this from a distance. That's my point here. When Jesus says you have to pay attention to their fruit, He means you have to actually get close. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't say... Beware the false teachers and avoid them at all costs. He doesn't say beware the false teachers and stay away. 
he says, you will know them by their fruit. How are you going to know what their fruit is? You've got to get close. How are we supposed to disciple people? You've got to get close. I've said it a hundred times from this position right here. Discipleship means investment. The person being discipled has to submit willingly to the authority and the teaching of the person who's doing the discipling. And the person who's discipling has to give up their time and their energy in order to teach and to train and to mentor the disciple. It's a life of investment. You have to get close. You know, the life of Christianity is a life of getting close to people. We're in relationship with people all the time. That's why it's not good for us to be alone. Okay, It's not just because I can't separate my laundry correctly. It's because we need to be in relationship with people. We need to be in relationship to help them grow in the Lord. We need to be in relationship in order to share the gospel. We need to be in relationship in order to disciple. We need to be in relationship in order to discern whether they're teaching what God's Word says or not. We need to be close enough to see the fruit. Discipleship costs. We have to be close enough that we might even get messy. That means we need to go where the sinners are. That needs, means we need to take the message where the broken are. The whole purpose of the Women's Resource Center. Put yourself in the shoes of an unwed 16, 15-year-old whose boyfriend doesn't want to get caught and doesn't want to get arrested is pressuring this young woman to hide the evidence. We need to go where the hurting are. We need to go where the sin is. You know, it's already happened. Do we stand and berate and talk down to and tear apart somebody whose soul is already crushed because of the consequences for their actions? Or do we step alongside and reach into that mess and help them come out of it on the other side? The life of discipleship is one that means we're going to get messy. Jesus doesn't tell us to separate from the wolves. He says they'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. Who does that? Yeah, you know, I've, I've read through the entirety of Scripture and nowhere does God say that He's going to give the axe to the church. It's not our job. God says that part will be taken care of. Our job, remember what Jesus said about judging? Judging with that eye towards condemnation? So if the person's a false prophet and we see them as a false prophet, what are we supposed to do? Matthew chapter 18. If they say they're a Christian, they proclaim that they're a Christian, they say that they're teaching God's word, what do we do? We go to them one-on-one. Hey, I can't help but notice that you're teaching something that doesn't line up with Scripture. Perhaps there's something that I'm not understanding or you're not understanding. Let's talk. If they repent, what does Jesus say? You've won back a brother. And if they don't, what do you do? 
you take a couple of witnesses with you. Hey, look, we've all seen, we've all studied, we've all come to the same conclusion. You're off the rails. Can we help you? And if they repent, what does Jesus say? You've won back a brother. Right? And if they don't, then you bring them before the church. The elders of the church you say, okay, look, we've ta- I've talked to you individually. We've talked to you as a group. Now it's before the entire church. You've gone off the rails. We're trying to bring you back to the message that God says we're supposed to teach. Do you repent? If they do, you've won back a brother. If not, what does Jesus say? Treat them like a non-believer. And what do we do with non-believers? We love them enough to step into their mess and share the gospel with them. So even the wolf may yet be saved. Wow. Bet you've never heard that when you're taught to be a fruit inspector before, have you? Then we hit verses 21 through 23. What I've said is the most frightening passage in Scripture for the church. Jesus is talking about a different group of people. So you have basically four categories of people in the world, okay? Two main categories, you have people that are saved, you have people that are unsaved. And inside those two categories, you have those who are saved and who know it. They have confidence in their salvation. They have assurance of their salvation. It's not to say that they don't ever doubt, because everybody who is saved doubts, right? So you have those who are saved who know that they are saved. You have those who are saved who don't have that assurance, who do have doubts, who do have questions, they're probably young in their faith. All right, that's this group over here. Then you have the group over here, the ones that are unsaved, right? You have those that are unsaved who know it, right? They're the guys who, who, who will look at you and say, I'm not worried about that Jesus fella. If I go to hell, that's okay. All my friends will be there and we'll have a party anyways. Okay, they're unsaved, they know it, and they don't care. But then you have this group of people who are unsaved but think that they're saved. They think they're okay. This is who Jesus is talking about in verses 21 through 23. The wolf is seeking to destroy the church through false teaching. The people here that Jesus is talking about are those who think that they're saved because they've done everything that they're supposed to do in Jesus' name. They've prayed in Jesus' name. They've come to church in Jesus' name. They they say the words in Jesus' name. They might even give Jesus the credit for the things that they do. But their faith is in what they do. First, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Okay? So there are those who will say, Lord, Lord. They will stand and face Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. Now in the Greek, when you see a repeat like that, it's a level of intimacy. It's it's like saying a person's name twice right it would be like me saying tim buddy really steph dear 
it's a level of intimacy that shows a relationship. Jesus says not everybody who presumes that relationship has one. You can call Jesus Lord and not mean it. Would you agree? I hope so. I've done it. (laughs) These people don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's a a measure of obedience there that Jesus is talking about. That, That there's something different about just saying it and doing it. But it's not about what we do. Because if you keep looking here, he says on that day they're going to say that they did the what? They did the what? Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? We cast demons out in your name. We did mighty works in your name. Where is their faith? It's in the stuff that they did. They may even have said that they did it through the power of Jesus. (coughs) These people have an impressive spiritual resume. Right? Now, number one, let's talk about the visible church and the invisible church again. Okay? The visible church is made up of people who are saved and know it, and saved and don't know it and unsaved and know it, and unsaved but don't know it. Okay? And Jesus is saying that the unsaved and don't know it are going to come to him and say, look, look at all the stuff that I did. Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father. Are you saying it's not God's will for prophecy? It doesn't say false prophecy there. Jesus doesn't include them as the ravenous wolves. He's already dealt with that. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't God, doesn't His will have a place for casting out demons? Because the apostles did it, and Jesus did it, right? And Jesus even said to the, the apostles when He ascended into heaven, He even said to them, mightier things than this you guys will do. You will do greater works than I did once the Holy Spirit comes. So when they say we've done this and we've done this and we've done this, the mighty works, look at the big stuff we've done in your name. Jesus doesn't say, well, then I guess I have to let you in. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. What does that say? If you come to Jesus and your list of mighty works, because I'm talking to a church full of American Christians, your mighty works are, but Jesus, I walked the aisle. I prayed a prayer. I signed a card. I even took a dip in the tank. These guys are talking about prophecy and casting out demons. And doing other mighty works like probably healing the lame and, and, and all this stuff. 
In the United States, the mighty works that we get are, Jesus, I sang in the choir. Regardless of what the work is that you claim to do in Jesus' name, if your faith is in that work, it's in the wrong place. And that's what Jesus is talking about. There are going to be those in the church who show up on the day in front of Christ, on the day of judgment, and they're going to have an impressive spiritual resume. But they're not going to have Christ. And he says, I never knew you. Lord, look at all the good stuff that I did. I, I, I worked in the soup kitchen. I fed the homeless. I, I clothed the naked. I, I cared for orphans. I ran an animal shelter. I did, I did. I put money in the plate every week. And I, I preached. There are people who are doing the same thing I'm doing right now who are going to stand before Jesus and his response to them is going to be, I never knew you. There's a reason I call that the most frightening words in Scripture. Because even though there are those of us over here who are saved and we know it, we still have those moments of doubt. And because I've read this passage, when I have one of those moments of doubt, I don't go to the saved and don't know it. I go to the what if I'm unsaved and to think I'm okay. What if I'm the person he's going to say I never knew you to? That scares me. That, that really does. It frightens me. Notice also, when he says this, the, the words that he uses, I never knew you. What does Jesus say about his sheep? I know my sheep and my sheep know me, right? My sheep know my voice, and they listen to me. I know my sheep. And here Jesus says on the day of judgment, he's going to stand there and he's going to look at people and say, I never knew you. Not ever. Not I knew you once, but you sinned too much. Not I knew you once, but you gave up your salvation. Not I knew you once, But you strayed off the path. He said, I never knew you. Never, ever, ever. Never knew you. We never had that relationship. And then, <laughs> look, a little bit more sand in the face. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The same people who just said, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. The same people who said we cast demons out in your name. Not in their own name. Not in their own power. Not in their own status. Not not with anything that they had. They were prophesying in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or the old English word, you workers of iniquity. Or let's put it in the vernacular, you sinners. Depart from me. Trespassers. Depart from me. The people who had done these mighty works in the name of Jesus, Jesus says they're worthless. There's another person who said that. His name was Isaiah. 
He said that all the righteousness we bring to the table is filthy. By the way, the English language has made that a very euphemistic word. Because filthy rags in the Hebrew is talking about biomedical waste. It's talking about used feminine products that are disposed of outside the camp. That's what our righteousness is worth. That's why when we do things outside of Christ, not just in His name, but on our own, in our own strength, without His salvation, our righteousness is nothing. And it's all lawlessness. So when we start talking to people this week, when we go out, remember, like I said, Christianity's messy. A life of discipleship is messy. A life of making disciples is messy. And there's but one thing that Jesus told us that we need to be worried about when we're talking to other people. And what is that? Making disciples, right? It's messy. You're going to get close to people. Drive-by discipleship, okay? You, You don't just whip your Bible out the window and start chucking verses at them from a forty-five caliber. That's not discipleship, okay? Yeah, you can share the gospel that way, but it's not going to be very effective. Discipleship requires investment. And it's going to be very hard to do if you're not willing to get messy.